0: everybody, I'm KYW Community Affairs Reporter Cherry Gregg, and this is a very special one-hour edition of Flashpoint. I'm listening is Intercom's effort to shine the light on mental health and suicide prevention for Suicide Prevention Awareness Month hundred thousand Americans have died from COVID-19 nineteen. Millions have lost their job and the country has been turned upside down because of racial unrest
1: people are trying to cope and deal and be resilient and show grit but it's difficult
0: that's their answer like how do you feel I feel overwhelmed experts say the recent timeline of events may have created the perfect storm for a mental health crisis what we're experiencing now
2: Is like the tsunami effect as this goes on, the
0: impact will be felt. How do we stop the damage? We dig in. Then she went on a quest to find her son after tragically losing him to suicide. I just wanted to give him a voice. A Philly mom turned filmmaker, how she found peace within her grief. We'll be right back.
3: I'm Ari Fulcher. On the surface, Felicia Roche seems picture-perfect. This is what mental illness looks like when I look fabulous, and this is what mental illness looks like when I'm all broken down and, and crying and not eating for days. The mother, author, and successful mental health advocate lives with suicidal ideation caused by childhood trauma. She was 14 when she first attempted to take her own life. It's almost like OCD, like you have intrusive thoughts constantly that's always telling you that, well, there's always the option of dying. Felicia wrote Unraveled, a book that walks through her journey from hurt to healing with a focus on family and purpose. And hers is having conversations that remove the stigma of mental illness and provide resources for those suffering in silence. We're surviving it. We hope we beat it. It's just an idea of this is an illness,
4: how do we address it? How do we fight
3: it? With therapy, friends, and family support, and Felicia's message? We have to be okay with not being okay so that we can be okay. If you or someone you know is in crisis, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK or contact the crisis text line by texting TALK to 741 741-741-741. Welcome back to
0: I'm Listening, a Flashpoint special where we're shining the light on mental health for Suicide Prevention Month. I'm Cherry Gregg. The COVID-19 pandemic has thrown America for a loop. Not only have we had to cope with sickness and death from the virus, but also social distancing, isolation, masking, and economic and job loss. And to top it all off, racial unrest following the death of George Floyd. Some call this the perfect storm for a mental health crisis. So how can we prevent negative outcomes and save lives? Let's talk about it. With me to discuss this flashpoint is Julie Patika, director of crisis intervention at Montgomery County Emergency Services. We have Philip J. Roundtree, a wellness coach and founder of Quantify LLC. We have Trevor Evans, a clinical social worker who's on the board of directors for the Men's Center for Growth and Change. And finally, we have Sarah Ashley Andrews, founder of Dare to Hope. Everybody, welcome to Flashpoint.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you. Suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the United States. We lose about 48,000 Americans a year to suicide. And some have said that the pandemic has created the perfect storm. Julie, I want to start with you. You work on a crisis line. What have you seen since this
2: pandemic hit? We were really prepared for a large influx of calls. Uh, In the beginning, we had daily highs of calls. However, uh, ironically, our numbers are turning out to be on par with last year's at this time. Um, in, in doing some research on this, I discovered that this is really not uncommon. Uh, in terms of disasters, we can be considered to be in the impact phase of the uh, pandemic, impact phase of this disaster, so to speak. So it's really not uncommon to see um, um not such a rise at the moment. What we're experiencing now, in my mind, is like the tsunami effect. The tide is out. We're standing on the beach uh, watching the water recede, and we can expect as this goes on uh, that the impact will be felt at a later time. So it's very appropriate that we're talking about this now and and preparing.
0: And and I want to bring in uh, Phil because the CDC reported in June that Uh, 40% of American adults had experienced issues with mental health or substance abuse during the pandemic. And this was in late June. You work with all sorts of communities. What are you seeing on the ground? I mean, and, and some people are closer to the pain than others.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I think what we're seeing is we're we're just seeing a a tipping point in in so many different ways. Um, I work primarily with, with black and Brown individuals. And so, you know, we, here we have COVID this new norm that so many people are trying to navigate. We're talking about, you know, this isolation, this massive disruption in our day to day. A lot of people are learning that the coping mechanisms that they had for, throughout their lives aren't really useful during this COVID period. Uh, I work with a lot of men who use the gym as an outlet. And there was a period of of four to five months where the gym was closed. And so here they are twiddling their thumbs trying to to figure out how best to cope was taking place. And then you have this idea of our essential workers who are on the front lines, who are forced to be there just due due to the nature of their job. And, you know, their physical, their physical wellness has been put in jeopardy, you know, due to COVID. And then we're talking about the racialized trauma when it comes to Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Jacob Blake. Um, There's so many more. And so many people are are trying to cope and deal and be resilient and show grit. But it's difficult. And a lot of people are realizing that. They need some type of assistance to help in their day to day. Some people resort to those maladaptive, unhealthy ways, which is overindulgence and vices, drugs, alcohol, uh, promiscuity. Um, and then there are those who, who are trying to find healthy outlets, um, such as seeking out teletherapy, which has mm-hmm. been a, a positive that, that has come out of this COVID. Because for so long, insurance companies were saying, no, no, no. It has to be face-to-face. Now, here we are, where everybody's doing teletherapy and going into the future. I don't see that changing.
0: Trevor, I want to bring you in here. So many people reporting signs. One in four young people, a lot of folks are saying that they've even had suicidal thoughts. Why is this happening? And it's hitting people that never thought that they would have any type of mental health challenges.
5: Yeah, a lot of times young men and and certainly older men too have a difficult time identifying emotions, and sometimes it comes out in the form when they feel overwhelmed with things. They uh, comes out in the form of suicidal thoughts, and they don't quite understand that and don't know how to uh, what to do with that, and so they're having to learn different coping um, you know strategies. In some ways, telehealth has created an opportunity for men to talk with other men. I've run some groups um, uh, where that is occurring. And I think a lot of men feel a sense of shame around feeling suicidal because it's seen as a weakness um, and don't often see the opportunities, uh, other opportunities uh, or ways of, uh, of coping, you know, with the, the challenges of isolation and relationships Families are all home now together, and that has created some challenges. So it's interesting I'm doing more whole family therapy than I've probably done in the last five years, which is a great thing. So I think there's some good things that are going to come out of this. But in the meantime, we're struggling.
0: Tara, Ashley, I want you to talk about young people. This is for kids, for teens who are used to being very social. Um, This is a critical part in your adolescent development and you're told you can't go to school, you can't go play basketball, you can't hang out with your friends. How does this impact their mental health? And what are some of the signs and symptoms that maybe, you know, they're struggling?
4: It's just funny, because over the past couple of days, I've just been seeing a, a few children who have been overwhelmed, like just and like that's their answer. Like, how do you feel? I feel overwhelmed. Um, they're overwhelmed with yeah. having to be on the screen all day long, overwhelmed with the technical issues of like, I can't log in, I can't get, I got to go to this breakout room. It's frustrating. One thing that I tell parents all the time is allow your kids to break, right? Allow your kids to have that time away. Um, and a lot of times what um, manifests itself as like an attitude or just um, kind of being lazy really is them just feeling how they feel and being in their state. What I always tell the parents is, kind of be aware, listen, watch, like right? watch for the behavior changes, watch for them withdrawing, watch for them wanting to just rest and then allow them that space and time to do that. like we get, adults get overwhelmed and we need breaks so the same for, for youth and young adults.
0: Kids say they're overwhelmed but some kids don't speak you know especially kids in that preteen are, are there things that parents need to be attaching themselves to or paying attention to?
4: Mood shifts definitely like the change in mood um, what we always say is like the the adolescent blues or the, the childhood blues, really is a sign. Like if your child is moody, like pay attention to that, talk to them and have these unrestricted like conversations about feelings and allow them that safe space to talk or to not even talk. Just sometimes sit with them and just let them know that you're there. But I think the change in the mood, um, the language, sometimes people will say, kids will say how they feel without saying how they feel. And I think we just need to pay attention and really take time to listen to what they're saying and then kind of follow up with questions that can get them to open up more.
0: And Julie, I want to bring you back in here because you touched upon something. I mean, initially we did see an uptick in domestic violence calls to the hotline. We've seen an uptick in gun violence, not just in Philly, but across the country. Uh, And you mentioned that this issue of suicide we haven't really seen what it could actually be. How do we mitigate some of this? Because we, we're seeing it spike in other areas.
2: Yes, yes. Even in our country, we're at different phases of this pandemic. Some, some areas have this under control. Uh, the circle of impact in each area is definitely different. What we need to do to mitigate things is reduce stigma, make sure there's adequate support, make sure people know where to call for help, make sure people know what the difference is between normal blues and a crisis or an emergency. Fortunately, with all this, uh, you know, again, perfect timing, uh, Pennsylvania just came out with a state uh, statewide suicide prevention plan, just issued September 2020. Um, and those are some of the items in that plan. I often say, you know, in the medical world, you know, if you have an elderly neighbor, you're used to looking out at your neighbor and and checking in on them. And we need to be that same way from a mental health standpoint for our neighbors to reach out and not be afraid to have that conversation. Hey, how are you doing today? How was this pandemic affecting you. Some people don't want to talk about the impact. You know, we may have folks facing evictions. We may have our neighbors with all sorts of financial impacts from this. So we need to have those open conversations.
0: And you guys get a
2: lot of calls. What are some of the issues people bring up when they call you? It's a range. Crisis is unique. To you, what might not be a big deal to you could be to me. So we take a, a, every call seriously. The calls we're getting lately are not so much related to the pandemic per se. Yeah. Uh, it appears to me that one result of it, though, is that people are having the time that the stay-at-home orders have had them um, sit and think, or oh, maybe I should get help about this. Or they've reached out to get help for a family member who they didn't realize was having problems before. Yeah. Um, so those are the kind of things that we're seeing and trying to get them pointed in the right direction with local resources.
0: Yeah, and, and Phil, I want to bring you back in here because you touched upon, and this kind of ties with what uh, Julie is saying, I mean, people have this, this disruption of schedule. All the social gatherings went away and all the things that you did and now you have all this time. And then the trauma that people are experiencing, you know, could you talk about the impact of the trauma on top of that, like the loss of life? A lot of trauma here,
1: Philip. Yeah. yeah, no, no, it's definitely a lot of trauma. We're talking about the Uh, the loss of life from from COVID. And that's just the extreme. I'm always critical of of how the media has portrayed COVID is either you're asymptomatic, and you'll be fine, or that there's going to be deaths. But nobody talks about the long term lung damage that is being seen in in different studies. They're not talking about an asymptomatic, how we're seeing um, lung damage, again, we're not having these conversations and the more data that data that comes out, we're starting to truly see that people are impacted, not only in the short term, but in the long term. And again, it is traumatic. It is um can take a toll on your your mental wellness. I'm somebody who lives with depression and anxiety. I just took my medication probably about, you know, three minutes before we got on here because I recognize um what can happen um, to me personally, if I don't, right, I, I can spiral and experience bouts of depression, how I manifest depression, how a lot of men and black and brown men in particular, manifest depression and anxiety. It's not necessarily being in your room for three or five days, you know, three to five days, isolating yourself. No, it can man, it, it often manifests itself in in anger and rage. And so again, we're seeing all this, this trauma, You know, with the again, I talked about the the police killings, we're talking about the community violence, this historical and and present day trauma that continues to impact us all. It's it's very taxing. Um, I don't think the implications will truly be seen for for years and, and decades to come. But what we're seeing in the in the short term is this continued rise in in suicidal ideations and, and suicide attempts and, and suicide, especially amongst our, our young black folks. So it's taking a lot and I think we're conditioned at this point not to exhale because we know something else is yeah. going to happen.
0: And Trevor, could you talk about this idea of suicide suicidal ideation. I mean, what is it? How does it present itself? Phil talked about something. I mean, a lot of times, I mean, people don't realize recklessness, suicide by, suicide by cop is a thing. People throw themselves in all kinds of, of positions because it's an illness.
5: It's interesting to try and understand the root cause of uh, suicidal ideation. It comes from depression, um, comes from, you know, anxiety. It's just not, I don't think it's just one event in a person's life. It comes from potentially being, you know, impulsive. And again, I think it goes back to we're not always, um, particularly with men, taught how to express emotion. And if you think about kind of the boy code, which is we have to be the sturdy oak. No crying, no weakness, give them hell, be aggressive, be in charge, to no sissy stuff. And I think men struggle with the issues of, of shame or um, struggle to be vulnerable. Um, and so I think many of the men that come to see me, the presenting problem always seems to be depression and anxiety um, and not knowing how to identify how they feel. And it comes out in the form of, I feel suicidal. I wanna kill myself. You know, part of it, I was, you know, interesting in talking with a gentleman this morning, actually, who's grieving the loss of a family member, who said, you know, you've helped me to explore emotions I, I'm not familiar with. Um, and so when you start giving people kind of words to describe, I think it helps. And certainly the isolation of COVID has uh, created a lot of uh, challenges for people. Um, even those people who want to stay at home, you know, they become disconnected from people. And so we, yeah. need, we need each other. We need to be connected you know, to each other.
0: So Sarah Ashley, you kind of, and we're going to switch over to how do you, how, how do you have these conversations? I, I think people get to know their kids they getting to know each other. How do you reduce the stigma and actually open the door for the kinds of conversations that could lead to folks getting help or healing because they need to be had?
4: So I think that if you don't know how to have the conversation, right? If this having a conversation about mental health with your children is overwhelming, there's a website called Therapy Aids. And on this website is like literally every tool that you could possibly need, right? And there is... It, and it's really like as simple as feeling charts and feeling circles and feeling wheels and how are you feeling? Let's color this in. Tell me how you're feeling right now. Let's color this in. And then once you do these activities with your children, that kind of opens the door for the conversation. So if a child colors in, I'm angry. If a child colors in, I'm feeling overwhelmed. I'm sad. Then that's how we start to have these conversations. Because what, why, what is making you feel sad right now? What about this situa- situation is making you sad? What about this time right here is making you feel overwhelmed? So I think to start with an activity is a great way to break that ice with with the children and for the parents too, and also just creating that safe place where kids know that they can come and talk to talk to their parents about it or their caregivers. I don't want to keep using the word parent, but their caregivers about how they're feeling. But I think that would be a great start starting with an activity.
0: Yeah, and I gotta follow up because you have an amazing story. You lost someone very close to you, and you flipped that into helping hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. Could you talk a little bit about your story and how you kind of help people have these conversations? My
4: friend died by suicide um, at 25 years old. From his death, I decided, actually God decided, I'm gonna say that, to give me Dare to Hope. And with Dare to Hope, I educate people on suicide prevention and mental wellness. And his death really changed the trajectory of my life. Like I started as a mass comm major in Bloomsburg and then um, went on to like change my major to human services biblical studies and then to get my master's in counseling uh so it's just so important for me to to be able to start these conversations with people um because that's where healing begins healing begins with a conversation and if we don't know what to talk about if we don't know what to look for if we don't know how to start it then we'll never have these conversations and we'll just keep losing people and more so black and brown people but we'll continue to lose people because we won't have these conversations or don't know how to have the conversation
0: yeah and in the interest of full disclosure i'm gonna I get therapy every monday been getting it every Monday for four years and you know it's something that you have to you have to admit people have to say this out loud because people look at you and they think, "Oh, you got it all together no like anxiety is real, and you have to do whatever you need to do to stay sane literally stay mm-hmm. sane and so I want to bring in you, Julie, because you mentioned the state. Is this a turning point? Could, this, could COVID-19 be a, a tipping point so that people in government, city, state, nationally actually start to say, maybe we ought to put resources into mental health, because if we don't, fill in the blank, because the CDC yeah. has already
2: said this could be a major problem. Yes uh, we definitely need uh, funding for for community programs need funding to help support those who are financially challenged and cannot seek the help um, even just by virtue of what's there now in terms of the technology some people don't have the technology to access the telehealth services that that are needed all of that is going to need uh, funding and i I do think based on you know what we've seen um funding put into veteran services. Um, You know, I I hope that's a good sign that uh, our leaders will, will start um, uh, putting the dollars where they need to be for these services.
0: Yeah. Phil, do you see gaps? (laughs) Is there any silver lining to all this madness? Seriously?
1: I mean, you want to be hopeful, right? Like, I mean, as, 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 as a people, right. Humanity says we should be optimistic, but if, you know, me being a, a Black man in, a, in America, 30, how old am I, 36 years of age, um, I'm not too optimistic about resources being filtered down into the community with people who, who look like me because historically that hasn't taken place. So for me personally, and that's why I think it's important for, for individuals like Sarah Ashley and myself, other people of color, to not necessarily rely on, On this government aid or um, to 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 rely on on government in general to provide services to to, you know, disenfranchised and, and marginalized population, because historically that hasn't taking place. Again, when we have this conversation about about mental health, you know, we, it's been whitewashed, especially when we talk about suicide prevention. When we think about those who have died by suicide, we automatically start thinking about Robin Williams. We start thinking about Kate Spade. We start thinking about other white folk. There's, a, there's a, an amazing site that I'm on, psychologytoday.com, where I'm listed as a therapist. They've had a magazine for the last 30 years that hasn't had a person of color on it. Right. And so when we start talking about um, being optimistic, all the data in front of me says not to be optimistic. But yet again, we try to be right. So for me personally, I just know that I need to continue to to be of service within the community, holding the men's groups that I hold, having these conversations on mental health and and really teaching people about the idea of of relying on self and, and community in order to to aid and improve your, your mental health.
0: And Trevor, is there a way to kind of look at this and say, you know what, this is when I need to get help. This is what I need to be doing at home to support people. Because, I mean, like, Phil is right. I mean, at some t- there's a lot of people, a lot of people who fall between the
5: cracks. Uh, you know, absolutely. And I think part of what the Men's Center is trying to do is to reach out to that Disenfranchised populations and you know, provide access and make it certainly uh, um, you know accessible. I think education is certainly is is in, important. Um, young people are probably more familiar with uh, technology some than some others, but although at the same time are struggling because um, they don't kind of understand the consequences of their choices right now. You know, I'm work I work with 15, 16, 17-year-olds who who uh, are kind of uh, struggling to understand emotions to begin to begin with and don't quite understand about the COVID. And there are still, you know, many people still at that point where I don't want to be told what to do. I think part of it is working with families and educating families on what to look for with their children or with their spouses or with their parents, you know, and how to be more I guess, attuned to them.
0: Sarah, Ashley, do you see more people talking about it? Because I remember the thought of going to a therapist a few years ago was mm-hmm. like, oh no. You know, especially in black and brown communities, is there any silver lining
6: to any of this?
4: So the silver lining to me and to Phil's point is that we're going to continue the work, right? I'm going to continue to, to create platforms and safe spaces for kids to talk. Whether we get the funding or not, we're going to just do it. The other piece is that these conversations help, but what helps more is you, Cherry, saying, I go to therapy every Monday. It's Phil saying, I just took my pill, my medicine, five minutes ago before we jumped on this. Me telling people that I go to therapy every, th- that I was going to therapy every Thursday and that now even I need to go back because I feel my anxiety and that heaviness or that um, weight coming back, right? And I'm trying to function through that and even be the face of dare to hope, right? So I think the more transparent we are about our mental health, the more we normalize it, right? The more it's okay to talk about therapy, the more it's okay for us to have discussions about um, medication and, and our depression and, and living through it, right? And living with it and not letting it overtake us. But we have to be honest with each other and with ourselves. These discussions help, but it helps more when we, when we are transparent.
0: And because it's a flashpoint, we do need to wrap up. I want everybody to try to give a quick, we always do stuff with, a, you know, with our bodies, physical fitness, right? If you had a, a word of advice on a mental
2: health fitness plan, what would that be? And provide your website. Reach out, hold the hope for your neighbor. Don't be afraid to have these conversations. Be yourself, be casual, keep your door open. Let your neighbor know your door is open to talk. Here at MCES, Montgomery County Emergency Service, we have a local hotline, 610-279-6100. And then our center is part of the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. That number is 1-800-273-TALK. Thank you, Sarah, Ashley.
4: My bit of advice would be to be intentional about your morning. Uh, before we start pouring out of ourselves, we have to make sure that we have stuff inside of us, whether it's meditation, prayer, music, exercise, just be intentional with your morning. My website is www.dare-2-hope.org, or you can just simply follow me on Instagram at I Run Dare to Hope. That's where most of the motivation and stuff comes in it.
0: Trevor.
5: I would say as it relates to certainly men is to reach out, to connect, to make friendships. I think challenge traditional ways of masculinity. You know, we need to think more in terms of understanding intimacy, which for many men can be very threatening, which keeps them, um, again, isolated. I think people should get out and walk. Um, I have to do that for myself and connect. And the wonderful thing about walking is that I'm connecting with my neighborhood and my community, and ways that didn't happen before that. Website. MenCenter.org, I believe. Yes.
0: Thank you. Final word,
1: Phil. Word of advice that it's okay to feel however it is that you're feeling. So consider just me giving you permission to feel. People always ask me, Phil, are you happy? And I always say, my, I, I don't have a, a goal to be to be just happy. I, I want to be able to experience all emotions because all emotions are healthy. I want to be able to appreciate them. I want to be able to p- appreciate happiness when I'm in it. I want to be able to appreciate anger and sadness and then understand and learn from it. So it's okay to feel however it is that you're feeling in that moment in time. And then if we need to do the necessary work to improve upon those feelings, if it is unhealthy and impacting us in a negative way, then we do that. Contact me at www.quadify, that's Q is in quail, U-A-D is in dog, E-F-Y. LLC.net.
0: Thank you so much, Julie Patika, Trevor Evans, Philip Brown Tree, and Sarah Ashley Andrews for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. I appreciate you all. Thanks, man. Thank you. Next up, she grew a rose out of concrete following an unimaginable tragedy. You know, I was I was just in a daze. I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. How a Philly Mom transformed her grief into finding the son she lost. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. It's me, Cherry Gregg. Welcome to part two of this very special edition of Flashpoint. I'm listening. It's Intercom's effort to shine the light on suicide prevention. Coming up... and this half of the show, we'll talk to a woman who went on a journey to find the son she lost.
7: It just shattered me. You know, it shattered me. And I, I just I couldn't understand, like why he would do such a thing.
0: The award-winning film that grew from her grief, providing a thread of hope to others. Then they provide a lifeline for children and caregivers who need to talk.
6: Very difficult. It's difficult for adults right now. Mm. Far more for our students.
0: The Philly Hope Line. its would-be purpose, and who it's saving during the pandemic, prefers traffic and a story of survival. We'll be right back.
3: I'm Ari Fulcher. Like many people, David Huber had experiences with depression.
8: I felt that being a failure, not having success in what I had set out in life, I felt a burden. The
3: Pennsylvania-based attorney says it began at the age of
8: 18. I had aspirations to attend West Point, the United States Military Academy. Due to injuries from a car accident, medically it didn't work out. And I was dealing with an alcoholic father who had treated and dressed it that I was a failure.
3: In a few years after the loss of his grandfather to suicide, he attempted to take his own life as well.
8: When you feel a depression, you feel both alone and you feel that the world of those you care for would be better without you than with you.
3: But David is a survivor, using his story to help others.
8: I never want another person to ever feel as I did, that I don't belong here, and those I love are better without me. So
3: when he's not working on cases, He's working on outreach programs with the American Foundation of Suicide Prevention.
8: We're trying to change that stigma. We have a project, it's called Project 2025, to reverse the overall way that we look at mental health, the way we look at suicide, the way we look at depression.
3: David believes that changes can happen through conversations, but using your instincts and speaking up is the key to bringing that change. And his message?
8: Take part and be active. If
3: you or someone you know is in crisis, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK or contact the crisis text line by texting TALK to 741-741.
0: Welcome back to I'm Listening, a Flashpoint special where we're shining the light on mental health and suicide prevention. I'm Cherry Gregg. Our newsmaker is an award-winning Philadelphia-based filmmaker who got her start as a result of the tragic loss of her son. Elijah was just 20 and a budding filmmaker in his own right when he took his own life in 2017. While grieving the loss of Elijah, Yolanda Johnson Young began a journey. And the result is titled, Finding Elijah. Yolanda, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you, Sherry. First of all, how are you
7: doing? I'm doing okay. You know, the, the pandemic has made it a little bit more difficult, but I'm, I'm doing okay.
0: And I, yeah. I want to jump right in, and I know this is a sensitive subject. Three years ago, 2017, you lost someone very close to you, Elijah.
7: Elijah was my my filmmaker son you know he loved films since he was a child reading through some of his writings after his passing I realized that he had been struggling for some time with some mental health issues that you know he hadn't mentioned something to me and I said okay let's go and get the help he said oh well I'll think about it let me you know let me work on it because he was almost 18 at this point you know and he um disappeared for about a year. Then he took his life by suicide in June of 2017. It was like a bomb went off in our lives. I got the call the day before my birthday. It just shattered me. You know, it shattered me. And I I just, I couldn't understand like why he would do such a thing. And I don't know that I will ever have those answers, but I was able to piece together enough information to include his writings, his videos that he's made, to give him a voice in a short documentary that I created, Finding Elijah.
0: Finding Elijah. And before we talk about this film, this award-winning film, by the way, congratulations. Thank you. I just have to talk about Elijah a bit because so many parents have children and they have no idea that their children may be suffering. And now when you think back in hindsight, were there clues that you saw that you did not necessarily link to the type of suicidal thoughts that maybe he was having but didn't share to people?
7: Yes. Um, He had gone selective mute at home. He stopped speaking for five months. Two weeks into it, I quit my job. I said, there's something happening. I need to be present, you know, and I tried everything to get him to talk. He was using nonverbal communication. You know, he would text, he would send an email. If I called his cell phone, he would answer and listen to what I said. And then I'd hear him moving around upstairs. Okay, so he gets it. He knows we have to go to the grocery store. That was the one thing that looking back... Now I know that I probably should have dragged him kicking and screaming to the doctor, but he was always peculiar. You know, he was always different. So him not speaking at first, it just seemed like, okay, well maybe he just needs a break. You know, he was a college student. He had, um, he had had some troubles in elementary school and we, we addressed those, you know, he had a psychological exam, which showed that his IQ was off the charts, but he had a learning disability in math. So we, we kind of tackled that with tutoring, you know, and when he started high school, He was on track and he graduated with all A's and one B, went straight to college, Dean's list, honor roll, you know, and that second year of college, I think he had math. And if you have had this level of accomplishment and then you you fall a little bit and you stumble a little bit, and I don't think he quite knew how to pick himself back up out of that and didn't want to ask for the help. When you got that call. Ooh, yeah. It was just... Like you're in a daze, you know. I was I was just in a daze. I couldn't I couldn't believe it, you know. And um, that was on a Thursday, and I had to wait um, until that following Monday to travel to New York. I wanted to walk the streets he walked. I wanted to touch the doorknobs he touched. I wanted to push the elevator buttons he pushed, and I wanted to hug the people that helped him, you
0: know. You channeled that grief into finding Elijah, a film.
7: Elijah was actually in film school. He was at the Art Institute. He loved films since he was a little boy. We talked about making films together. We always talked about movie ideas. And he knew I would do this. He knew. He knew I was going to do this. And my job as a parent and as someone who has survived a suicide loss, I just wanted to give him a voice. So I used his original photos, his writings. Some of his writings are very hard to digest. And I'm, I'm still trying to work something mm-hmm. out where I can use his writings to be helpful to others. Because if Elijah felt that way, there are thousands of other and young men who feel that way.
0: And going through this journey to create this film, and this film is about his life and actually finding out about your son because did you realize there were things you just did not
7: know there was one thing that I said to him said, I feel like I'm meeting him for the first time he had written something in an email that he said he's been able to manipulate the way people perceive him since he was a child Elijah was 10 years old when he looked at me one day and he said mom why are we celebrating Thanksgiving he said why are we celebrating Christopher Columbus again I said you know you're absolutely right you're absolutely right. These are things that we need to be more mindful about. He was
0: 10. He knew he was creating this image, but deep inside, he felt
7: totally different. Yeah, he talked about cognitive dissonance. And I remember him mentioning it to me once. I had to go Google it. <laughs> yeah, I had to look it up. I said, Oh, okay. You know, I definitely understand it now. Yeah. He was so smart. And. Mm-hmm. That's the one thing that I think I'm going to have to learn how to, as they say, let go and let God, because I still wonder, like, why, why, why did he think that was the answer?
0: Studies have shown that Black boys, especially between the ages of 5 and 11, have experienced Mm. an increase in the rate of suicide deaths, and that Black children overall, ages 5 to 12, Uh, die by suicide on levels two times higher than Mm. white children when you hear those types of statistics how does that make you
7: feel as a mother of, of multiple sons it breaks my heart because prior to losing him by suicide i was just like the robot you know everybody's a robot sometimes and we're just going on about our daily lives doing our daily routines and it's not until something stops you and stops you in your tracks that you know, you start to see things around you as opposed to just what's right in front of you. So I started to see after Elijah passed away, I think even in just in our city alone in Philadelphia, there were like three or four suicides, little boys, little black boys. I was like, oh my gosh, this 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 is a problem. This can't keep happening. What do we need? You know, do we need to talk about it? Do we need more education? Because I was the type of person, whenever I heard about a suicide, my first thought was, Well, where were the parents? Somebody should know something was going on. And the reality is sometimes you don't know.
0: Now you're using the film to start conversations. You won a Black Star Film Festival Award. Congratulations. Thank you. What surprised you about the
7: reaction to the film? I think for me, after losing Elijah and wanting to make the film, I just wanted to share him. As a grieving mother, the fact that no one would get to know how cool he was, you know, and... When I started making the film, of course, it was cathartic. You know, it was a healing process for me to be able to, I I say, bathe myself and my son for almost two years with going through his photos, looking through his hard drives and the different devices that I had access to. It was something that I could have never imagined. I, I would have never imagined that the conversations that I've been having across the country with other people who are either in my similar situation or know people is just a little good can come out of it. Just a little dip can come out of it, you know? Yeah. So you are kind of becoming an advocate in a way. Yes. I've done the American Foundation Suicide Prevention, Out of the Darkness Walk. And I said, I'm going to do it every year until I, even if I can't walk, I have grandbabies. Now they're going to push me in a wheelchair. You know, it's so difficult celebrating the accomplishments and the joy that are surrounding the film and the whole situation because it's bittersweet. It's very bittersweet. And so I think the film has won, I think it's won over almost just about 10 awards at different festivals. So I woke up one morning after winning the Impact Docs Awards. It was a Monday morning and I woke up and I got instantly sad. And then all of a sudden I felt like, you know, there's a man drowning in the ocean and God, he says, Lord, help me. He sends him a boat. He lets the boat go past. And he sends him, oh Lord, help me. He sends him a log. He lets a log go by. And then when he's drowning, he said, well, Lord, why didn't you help me? He said, well, I sent you a boat. Yeah. That was me. I sent you a log. That was me. So then I said, you know, maybe these awards are like, stop your crying get out that darkness you know just popping me upside the head with these awards saying girl stop it look look towards the light you know there's no longer a reason to stay in the depths of the sadness and despair look at the light you're creating so i'm trying to be comfortable with the the awards that the film is winning yeah that the attention that it's getting you know because it is it still hurts You know, it definitely still hurts. But the realization that other people are being helped and benefiting from this, then, okay, then maybe I can just straighten up a little bit more and hold my head up a little more higher and keep walking, you know? You are
0: growing a rose in concrete. Okay. Mm. You are growing a rose in concrete, sis. That's what this is. Because you take in a worst possible circumstance- and turning into into something beautiful and you never know whose
7: life you saved. There's so much shame, guilt, and embarrassment with a suicide. Yeah. You know, people don't want to talk about it. You know, and like I'd stated earlier, I was one of the people who whenever I heard about suicide, I would think, well where were the parents? Where were the friends? Somebody had to know something was going on, but it's not that, you know? And that was a lesson that I had to learn. Through through me learning that lesson, I figured, I said, you know, then I need to speak up. I need to speak up because I know there are people who are just drowning in despair, drowning in their shame, drowning in their embarrassment, don't want to talk about it, but it it needs to be discussed, you know, because uh, yeah, they need the help too. The survivors are, are definitely ones who need the help too. You know, our, our loved ones who die by suicide, there's, there's not a tangible thing we can do for them now we can only do for ourselves and our family and the people that the suicide affected.
0: Yeah. People have to forgive themselves. They have to forgive the person who took Mm -hmm. their life. Have you done that work? Yes. Have you forgiven you? Oh my goodness. Elijah.
7: Woo. Yes, indeed. Because I was very angry and I realized that, you know, when you're angry, you, your thoughts are clouded. Your decision-making is clouded. The way people view you, it's clouded, you know? And I had to release that anger. I was angry with myself. I was angry with his dad. I was angry with Elijah. I was angry with the world. I was just angry, you know? And it was like, I if I hold this in, it's going to destroy me. And I said, you know, I am going to have to combat that. And the only way I know how is to create something that, changes the way I feel about
0: it. And this film, Finding Elijah, has done just that.
7: Thank you. What a blessing. And where can people find the film? It is not um, available to the public yet, although on the 29th of September... WHYY is doing a regional broadcast at 7.30 of Finding Elijah. And it is still actually active in film festivals right now. But as an independent filmmaker, you know, it was never, I'd never imagined, okay, my film's going to go be playing at a, at a theater, you know, or it's going to be on TV. I really made the film for me. But the reality is I've had a couple of community screenings. Those are mind blowing because the people come and we have those open conversations. It's like a love fest. Well, check
0: out Finding Elijah, September 29th at 7.30 on WHYY. I have to say, Yolanda Johnson-Young, it's been a pleasure speaking with you and you are truly a survivor. And making something beautiful out of something so difficult. Next up, they're giving a line of hope to students and caregivers. When folks don't know where to turn, they can call us. An effort by the School District of Philadelphia to give kids the space to just talk. We'll be right back.
4: I'm
3: Ari Fulcher. 22 is a significant number for Ritzel Exconde. 22 veterans lose their life to suicide each day. And my son was 22 at the time of his death. 22 was also the number of times she plans to walk the art museum steps October 4th for the American Foundation Suicide Prevention Walk in honor of her son, Santiago Esconde, also known as Boogie. Boogie was so charismatic. Like, he was the goofball of everything. Boogie served in the U.S. Navy and was home for the holiday. The last time I had spoken to him, we were talking about what time he was leaving, they were going to be deploying in a couple of weeks. And the last time she saw her son was before the new year in 2016. Rissell says her son's death made her feel intense pain and numbness. All they did was sleep, cry, I didn't eat. But she turned her loss into a mission. Everything that I do and I strive for is now for his legacy and his children. Since her son's death, Rissell believes the work to end suicide starts within our society. So if we could take that stigma and that black eye off of the pain that people feel versus the pain that people can see, it would just make life so much easier. If you or someone you know is in crisis, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK or contact the crisis text line by texting TALK to 741741.
0: Welcome back to I'm Listening, a Flashpoint special where we're shining light on suicide prevention. I'm Cherry Gregg. The pandemic has been extremely hard on students and caregivers who've had their lives turned upside down with virtual at-home schooling causing isolation and overwhelm. Well, there's a line of hope for those who need to talk. Here to tell us about Philly Hopeline and their partnership with the Philadelphia School District is our Patriot Home Care Changemakers, Megan Zaffron and Lamaya Broussard of Uplift Center for Grieving Children. Both of you, welcome to the special edition of Flashpoint. Thank you. you. So for those who have never heard of the Philly Hope Line, Please tell us about it. It was
9: established and it actually opened in May. Uh, it was a partnership between the school district of Philadelphia and Uplift, basically because of the pandemic and all of the isolation that our kids and families were feeling. There needed to kind of be a resource where families and students could turn because they weren't able to access their normal supports. Maybe so we established the Hope Line, which is a free toll-free counseling with master's level clinicians, where they can talk about pretty much anything that's whether it's related to the pandemic or not. They just are not really sure who to call or where to turn. We are there staffing at five days a week. And it really was, even though there's national lines and state lines, um, we really wanted something local where if a student or a family calls about a specific school, we know that school, we know that counselor, we can connect them right away. So the local nature of this was, was something that
0: was really important to us. How's it going? Are kids, (laughs) are people? checking in what are what have you been saying
9: we know um, in the beginning it was really trying to make people aware of it so we had it all over the google classrooms in the district and really trying to push some media people are really knowing about this now in the district and we're kind of the go-to so we've kind of reached that first hurdle where if something happens whether there's like a death in a school or or something happening we're kind of part of that kind of plan afterwards that people are knowing they can call us for anything they need we have almost The 3000 minutes on the Hope Line since it opened. And the great thing is people can call, they might need a five minute call, they might need a two hour call. So whatever they need, we're there for. There's no time limits that we have, Uh, And we're really there to walk them through every single step. So we're really seeing it being utilized a lot by
0: caregivers and staff members of school, students, really working out well, I think. Yeah. And Lamaya, this is a very unusual time for young for kids, for students. They're used to being in a building with their teachers. They got counselors there. Talk about what you all have been hearing from the young people as they reach out for help or this, this line
6: of hope, so to speak. Definitely. It's very difficult. It's difficult for adults right now. Mm -hmm. far more for our students and so in the beginning when the schools first closed in March it actually was a lot of our high achieving students that were struggling and so these were the students who normally had A's had B's who normally would do really well in school and they were really struggling with the adjustment of not being in the physical building it was almost like their whole identity as a student That was usually wrapped into a very structured, very predictable school system was like completely rocked. And so parents were calling in and asking, you know, can you please, I I think my child has some depression that's going on. Can you please talk with them in the system? And was really unmotivated, but it really was just a complete disruption to their normal flow. The students that normally, and the caregivers was, you know, really struggling too with how to best support them because they were like normally We don't have to assist them in so many ways, but they just weren't motivated. But as we talk about, you know, with the psychoeducation information we give, Mm -hmm. that's very typical of grief. And so that's a part of what grief looks like. And then the other uh, population that I ran into a lot of calls from was a lot of our non-English speaking, so our immigrant communities that was calling and that a few students had just migrated over to the U.S. And so then they went into this school that they were just getting acclimated to, and then they had to go into the virtual world. That was so confusing for many students. And then they lacked a lot of the supports that they needed. And so they were just kind of thrown into you know, this virtual world with not even understanding how to navigate and then caregivers that were just so overwhelmed. Yeah. Some, something that would sound so simple, meaning like, you know, my, my student is struggling and reaching out, you know, being able to assist them and walk them through how to do that because they were just so overwhelmed. Their role like tripled overnight. So now they were a caregiver, they were a teacher and they were trying to do behavior management.
0: Has this type of school district situation ever happened before? And what were some of the challenges and successes that you all face in implementing something like this in the middle of a pandemic? And, you know, I mean, it was a lot going on at that time. There was a lot of moving parts. And I think we got this up and running in a
9: matter of two weeks. So it was a lot of us learning kind of how to do this as we went. And um, we had awesome partners in the district who were just fabulous as as helping us we had um, like our team at uplift and everybody had a role some people were more of the tech side we had to develop kind of the infrastructure of it the logistics that would get a phone number name it get a logo um, there were so many little pieces to kind of developing this whole new thing that we had never done so it really was a huge team effort that I'm so proud of everybody has worked so hard on this but we really believe in the need for this local support um, that we're really the connector we're not the end-all be-all but I think that's really uh, the main thing about this is that when when folks don't know where to turn they can call us and even if it's maybe a chromebook issue or something that's not even what we know about but we can connect them to the people because we know we can warmly hand them off to a referral to a counselor we work with the city agencies a lot to make sure that we had those warm referrals so nobody was going to get lost in a phone system or anything that if they needed Further services, or they were in crisis, so there was no hassle or like red tape or any other frustrations anybody had to feel when they were already calling because they were at a level of isolation or frustration. We actually have an interpretation line with over 150 languages, so no matter what language of people need, we can access that instantly um, and really be able to communicate with anybody that calls, and that was also really important. We know if if we can help them with like the little things, there's probably some bigger things that we're supporting them in, and if we can get one thing off of their plate, then they're going to be a better caregiver, a better student, a better person, just not have as much on them, because we're all dealing with a lot right now.
0: This right now is the eye of the storm, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Like, you don't really see the impact of the pandemic. How is this sort of mitigating and
6: actually serving as a strategy for mental health? We're all certified trauma-informed grief services clinicians. And so with that being said, just normalizing how many families have called us and expressed and was sharing their concerns, sharing some of the behaviors that they were seeing. And because we are aware of those signs and the responses that are very common for grief um, and trauma that occurs, we were able able to give that that psychoeducation. And so we're able to kind of walk you through, okay, well, what does grief look like? What does you know trauma look like? Our groups typically before this happened was focused on grief from death, but we have had to, as you can imagine, expand. And so we have had to deal with different types of grief. And mm-hmm. so we do the general grief groups, but then we also have done, even if it was death from COVID, and then the disenfranchised grief that a lot of our Black communities are feeling now. That's a lot. I mean, there's a lot of different emotions involved in
0: this pandemic and you're growing you're still developing as a young person what should parents and caregivers be paying attention to when should they call the hope line i'm a parent my kids are home and it's it's a lot on a good day. I mean, I am gonna say
9: first and foremost, caregivers have to take care of themselves. So if you need support, if you need counseling, if you need just to take a breather, take a walk, you have to do it because we have a lot in our place as adults and we have a lot of little people to support. Calling HopeLine, whenever, honestly, if, even if you're not sure if we can help, we can direct you to the to the person that, that can help. Um, a lot of times when you're trying to reach a 1-800 number or, or a school or something that it's just you know, more difficult than it should be. You can call us, we can connect you. We have a lot of relationships that we, we really built out so we could do that and just make it easier for people. Um, And also just kind of giving yourself, you know, the grace that this is a pandemic. This is kind of all new to all of us. We're all doing the best we can. We're going to get frustrated, you know, and it's okay. We're all in this right now. And it's it's not easy. It is not easy. How can people
6: access the resources that you all provide? When I 3, 3, PHL HOPE. And they can access that number Monday through Friday, uh, 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. Then we will do whatever is needed to connect them to the right place. That's
0: wonderful that the HOPE line is listening. So you can check them out at one eight three phl HOPE. And thank you so much to Megan Zafrin and Lamaya Roussard of Uplift Center for Grieving Children. Thank you so much for being on Flashpoint and being a part of this important conversation. Thank Thank you so
3: much. Thanks for having us. We'll be right back. I'm Ari Fulcher. Every day, Isan Hines is faced with the memories of his younger brother.
1: Atif was really loved by everybody.
3: Atif Hines was known for his art and clothing company, but no one knew of his struggles. August 31st, 2017 would be the last time Isan heard from his brother.
1: I got a text message from my brother, and it said, I love you and I'm sorry. I actually disregarded the part of the message. I honestly thought that he sent it to the wrong person.
3: And a year later,
1: felt my own sense of depression while losing him. Just so many different things were hitting me at the same time. October 16th of 2018, I had a plan to take my life.
3: But he turned that plan into My Brother's Keeper, an organization he considers a safe space for people who may feel hopeless We'll hope again.
1: A lot of the initiatives with My Brother's Keeper Care is now systemically try to deal with things that impact people's quality of life.
3: If you or someone you know is in crisis, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at one 800 270 talk or contact the crisis text line by texting TALK to 741-741. That's it for this special edition
0: of Flashpoint. I'm Listening is Intercom's effort to raise awareness about mental health and suicide prevention. Intercom has resources available year-round at imlistening.org. If you or someone you know is in crisis, call 1-800-273-TALK. This show is available at kwwnewsradiocom slash flashpoint. I'm W Community Affairs Reporter Cherry Gregg, and I executive produce this show with Associate Producer Ariane Filcher. We'll be back at our regularly scheduled time next weekend And until then, thanks for listening.